How I love your word, how it lights my path, how it guides my way. Going to be sharing with us, so let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 20, and we're picking up the story where we left it halfway through Paul's farewell address to these elders in Ephesus. And so we're going to read Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 38. And uh, it's the last part of his very moving words to them. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 to 38. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and they embraced Paul and they repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. So Lord Jesus, thank you for David. Thank you for his love and his life before you. Lord, just come and fill his words now with your spirit. And may we hear them and receive them and receive what you're wanting to say to us this morning. Help us, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, David. I don't know how many of you have seen a film called You've Got Mail. It's a romantic comedy. And um, uh, with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. As the, but in one of the scenes, uh, there's a lady, um, the, the woman character in this, um, her job is to, uh, she's the proprietor of a bookshop that sells books for children. And um, somebody comes in and asks if they can have a copy of a book called, I think, Anne of Green Gables which again, some of you may have read. And um, the the shop owner says to her, remember that when you sit down to read this book, that you have a box of tissues next to you. Because 
you're going to cry with all the stories and the emotion. Well, you can see that in Forest Hill, they're prepared for that for their preachers. Almost every pew has a box of tissues. Now, I grew up um, from the ages of six stroke seven to 18 in boys' boarding schools. Uh, not the sort of um, uh, expensive ones. Uh, we went to um, a, a state grammar school where the headmaster wanted to set up a boys' uh, boarding school. And my brother and I went there. And we were amongst the first boarders. There were 25 of us, and it eventually rose to 40. But one of the things that I learned, even from the age of, say, six stroke seven, when I first went to a boarding school, was there were a lot of unwritten rules. And one of the rules was you didn't cry. If you were a boy, and it didn't matter if you were emotionally upset, if you were physically hurt, or if you had hopes that were dashed, you didn't cry publicly. You didn't weep. Um, and I'm not advocating this. I'm just saying that those are the rules that um, I grew up with. And they used to have physical caning, and you just took it. You know, nobody liked it. But you didn't, um, you didn't cry. Um, it was just a hidden rule amongst boys that you did not cry. Now, the amazing thing, and I've always loved this passage in Acts that Debbie read for us, in Acts chapter 20, and it makes me want to cry. Every time I read it, and I, I button it all up, <laughs> because I was brought up to button it all up, but it, it, it affects me emotionally as I read this passage. And I wonder why. So, but last um, Friday, two days ago, I decided I'd read a commentary on this passage to get some more wisdom. And the commentary I got was one by a man called Matthew Henry, right? And um, he says some, in the commentary, some scandalous things in our day and age, which would not be acceptable at present, but he was writing between 1708 and 1710 when the religious climate of England was much more, um, I don't know how you describe it. And so he writes a lot of things. But when I was a student, a Bible teacher came and told us if we were serious interested in studying the Bible and we wanted commentaries, against Matthew Henry's commentary, he'd written sell your shirt to buy this. And um, there was a, a modernizing Christian, probably about 30 or 40 years ago, who decided to go through Matthew Henry's commentary and uh, turn it into modern English. And he said in doing that for two years, it was the greatest spiritual stimulation he'd had for years. So as I read this the Matthew Henry's commentary on this uh, passage, he wrote the sentence, it's very hard to read this passage with a dry eye. And I thought, wow, <laughs> there's somebody besides me who, who gets emotionally stirred up by this passage. 
Now, Paul is at Miletus, and um, he'd, he'd been in Ephesus um, for three years, building the church, speaking to the church, encouraging the church. And he was passing by, and um, the great thing about Google Maps is you can say, how far is it from Ephesus to Miletus, and how long would it take to get there? And I can tell you now that if you want to walk by the inland route from Ephesus to Miletus, it according to Google, it takes you 13 hours and 11 minutes. And if you want to walk from <clears throat> Ephesus to Miletus, and you want to follow the coastal route along the seaside, it can take 14 hours and 46 minutes. So when Paul sends a, a messenger to, to, to gather together these elders, he's sending them on quite a long hike. I mean, it also says how, you can, how fast it takes you in a car, but they, they didn't have cars, of course. It's, it would have taken someone at least an hour, a, a day, to get there, if he, if he was very young and very fit and did triathlons and things. But it's more likely to have taken two days. And then he's got to assemble all these elders and, and get, them, get them all ready. And then they've got to walk it. And, and if they are elders, they're more likely to be a bit older. Um, and then they've got to come back and it's going to take another two days to walk. So quite amazing, I think, the fellowship that there must have been that these people are willing to do that long walk, and I think it's about, uh, I've forgotten the figure, something like 70 kilometers, uh, say 50 odd miles, or 50 miles between the two places. The other thing I love about scholars and historians, it can tell you exactly when this happened. It happened between the 29th of April and early May in AD 57. And they work it out all because of Paul is on his way to the Passover and they know when the Passover is going to be and they know all the journeys. Luke is incredibly good at describing all the stops on the journeys and where they went and how that, and so they can work it out. So it's, it's late April and early May, all these traverses are happening. And what's the first thing Paul says? He says, be on your guard for yourself. I don't mean I, the first thing he said before in our passage. In verse 28, be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock amongst whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Of course, we would, if we were thinking in Forest Hill, who are the overseers? Well, we probably think of the prayer planning team. I'm not a member of the prayer planning team, you might say. I'm, I'm not one of these overseers. And if you were thinking about Ichthus, you'd probably think of the ministry and management team. Ro Sorry, I'm talking about Debbie and the prayer planning team for Forest Hill and um, Roger and Faith and the ministry and management team for the whole of Forest Hill. They would be the overseers. But first of all, the prayer planning team have not been selected by Debbie, nor the M&M &M by Roger and Faith, they may have physically done that, but it's the Holy Spirit. And, it's the, and Paul says, he doesn't say, I chose your elders. He says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseas 
to shepherd the flock of God. So that, and I want to actually widen this to say that every one of us is an overseer. We may not be overseers for the Bonhoeffer congregation, but we are overseers for the people in our homes and families. We are overseers for the people that we work with or that we leisure with or that we cycle with or whatever we do. God has given us a field in which the Holy Spirit is selecting us to be an overseer for their spiritual health or their spiritual non-health, whatever it is. God is wanting to pour into us so that wherever we are, we have a Holy Spirit leading to people. And Paul says, and a modern translation, God thought you were worth dying for. He purchased you with his own blood, but um, uh, the message said, translates that God thought you were worth dying for as an overseer. In 1964, I was sent on my first construction site. Um, and um, I had to go up to Boston in Lincolnshire, not the Boston in, uh, <laughs> in the States. Would have been preferable, I think, to go to Boston. But I was a very uh, green, green um, not long-established Christian in those days, and I didn't quite know what to do. I'd never been to Boston, I'd never been to the Fens or anything like that. So, and um, I became a Christian at, when I was a student, and there was an organization called the InterVarsity Fellowship. That sounds very grand, doesn't it? So I wrote to them, and my letter said, do you know any Christians in Boston? And... Uh, that I would like, to, I'm going to work there, and I'd like to know if they've got any Christians there. And I got a letter back, and they gave me the name of a lady. No, it wasn't Anne. <laughs> but, and um, one of my, uh, the men that I was going to work with, he'd found digs for me in a, a village outside Boston. But I think two or three days after I went to um, Boston, I arrived in Boston, I went to call round to this lady. And I was in my early 20s, and I think she was probably either late 30s or early 40s. But she was very welcoming to me and said, yes, there were Christians in Boston. And, um, and that, she said, but I'd not been with her more than three quarters of an hour. Then she said, come with me. And she took me down the road to meet another man. Um, and um, by the end of the evening, I had been appointed an assistant leader for the... Um, the boy, the youth group attached to the church, right? The boys' youth group. And this older man was one of the biggest influences on my life. He was an absolutely incredible man. Man who'd been an orphan, um, had been brought up in an orphanage, um, a Christian, inverted commas, orphanage. Hated it, vowed to have nothing ever to do with Christianity again. And then he was converted. And... But he was, he was an in, incredible man. But anyway, that's a, that's a much longer story. Now, in that boys' group that met on a Sunday afternoon, and we had a sort of, uh, in the church hall, we had, um, on a Saturday night, we had sort of table tennis, and that, that was evangelism by table tennis, as somebody once called it, and, and uh, indoor football and things like that. Um, but in that group, there were two other assistant leaders, 
And one of them was a very dynamic young man then. And um, he was the one who's told me, when I, I, I've kept up contacts with him, and, and he was the one who told me he'd prayed for me every day for 50 years when we, when we met up earlier this year. Um, and um, I think I've said I, I was so glad he didn't ask me how often I'd prayed for him in 50 years. <laughs> but um, he was, and in fact, we met uh, this summer. My family were in the Lake District, and he was up there in the Lake District, and we met together and had... Had a good time. But when I've been in touch with him by phone and I'd, uh, I'd mentioned to him about the boys who had been in 1964 to 65, that's what I'm talking about, you know, it's a long, long time ago. He knew where every one of them was now and where they were spiritually. It was absolutely amazing. And we had a, a very mixed, um, it, it wasn't, I mean, uh, Academically, we had people who were struggling, and we also had people who went off to Cambridge University and things like that. But it was a sort of a, a very homogenous group of young men. And, um, but he could tell me where those who were keeping going on their faith. And he said one thing to me. He said, so many of those boys have said that those meetings we had on a Sunday afternoon set their spiritual course for their lives. Now, he wouldn't have been considered an overseer in, in, in the sense. But what he did was he thought about those boys, he trained those boys, and, it, 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 and uh, well, he's still alive. And as I say, I met him. The, the older man died some years ago. But we are called to be overseers for people and to see them come into a deeper and deeper relation with Jesus Christ. And Paul says, be on your guard, do not neglect. And he's talking about prayer, Bible reading, fellowship. The enemy wants to attack us. And if you meet someone and you, um, and they become a Christian, that isn't the end of your responsibility. It's the start. How do you follow them up? How do you make sure they're going to grow until they become mature in the faith? I was converted, when I, as I say, when I was a student. I'd been at school where we'd had religious services and things like that, and very good preachers sometimes and, and all sorts of things. But it hadn't got right deep into me. And then there was a mission in my first term at university, and uh, I realize now that the man who was leading the mission, it didn't mean anything to me, his name, his name was John Stott, uh, as a young man was leading the mission, and on the last day I was converted. And um, then somebody came up to me afterwards and said, would you like to join the Christian Union? And I said, oh no. Um, and then this other student came, and he, he met me, and he said, look, I think it would be good if you and I read the Bible together. Now, I was, this is my first term at university. I hardly knew people and this sort of thing. And I'd never heard of anybody who read the Bible with anybody else. And I didn't want to be impolite to him. So I said, okay. 
And so uh, he invited me to his room and he said, um, what part of the Bible would you like to read? And I'd heard of Proverbs and I said, Proverbs? He said, okay, we'll read Proverbs. Now, it was very unwise. The last, the last, the last thing if you've got a new Christian that you know, you let him choose what you're going to read. <laughs> and, and he became my friend and still is. And for three years, he was with me. And in the holidays, he would invite me over to his family house. His father was a baker and ran a baker shop in... Um, Malden in Essex, and um, and I'd go and we'd we'd play sport together. We played in the same hockey team. We'd play. Um, we used to play golf during our holidays and things like that. But what he did was make sure. And then um, he was asking me what I was going to do with my summer holidays. You know, we get these incredibly long holidays. And think. And I was thinking all the good things. He said, just remember, David, that there are boys' camps that uh, require Christian leaders. And he said, I'm going on one. Why don't you come? And so he came and introduced me to this. And so for, for then on, for many years, I went to these camps as just a, an assistant leader, they called them, you know, and you looked after the boys and, and that sort of thing. And he made sure that I changed from someone who was converted into someone who was growing and had grown a bit and would keep on growing. Very important the follow-up to the people that the Lord gives you. And you won't have successes every time by any means. Sorry, I'm, I'm just talking too much. But that I, suppose, I am supposed to be talking. <laughs> um... He says, from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perversely. And he calls them savage wolves. You've got shepherds and savage wolves. And wolves, they don't necessarily eat just for food. They will come and kill just almost for the pleasure of killing. It's like foxes in hen coops, you know. If they get into a hen coop, they kill all the hens. I don't know, they may eat one, some of one of them, but they kill all the others. It, it, it's a sort of thing. And Paul is trying to say that within the church, in the group of people, savage wolves will arise, and they will be what they will be doing is decimating the flock. And they sometimes can arise from the very people inside your own church. I can remember we had when, oh, in the early days when John Roberts used to lead the, the Ictus Beckenham congregation, um, we had a couple who were members of the thing. And some, a couple of Americans came to stay with them. And they seemed to be leading them astray. And we, we had a meeting. Um, and the, the couple were en enamored with the, this American couple. And when John Roberts and I and Anne were interviewing this American couple, and we asked which church do you come from in America? And what they said was, well, we're not attached to anything. Well, um, who, who, who finances your trips here? Oh, we depend on the people that we speak to, you know, and, and thing. They will finance us. And it was very clear to us that they were people who were, would destroy. And in fact, they did destroy uh, the couple. 
I think the couple did come back, they left the area and that sort of thing. But we, we need to be on guard. And, and that's where the prayer planning or the leadership of, of the church or whoever it is, their duty is also to make sure that they are safeguarding the flock. And when they see things that um, don't match up, that, that doesn't mean you won't have people who are oddities, who are fantastic um, followers of Jesus. Um, but you need to be on the guard. And Paul is saying, that you, be on your guard, because from among your own selves will arrive wolves. Therefore, be on the alert. I've, because of my job, which used to involve, I've, I've been in Beckenham for many years now, but in the early days, if you were a, an engineer on construction sites, you tended to have to move. And Anne and I, I think, I can't remember whether it was, we had six different homes in eight years. Um, but it, it's just because construction starts and finishes and then you, you move on. And, um, and so, <coughs> as a result of that, I, I, I was a member of um, several churches for some time. And um, I don't know, what was I going to say about them? Oh, yes, splits in many of them, you know? And um, it was it very, very painful. And the splits came from people who were within the church, who somehow they couldn't cope with this, or they couldn't cope with that, and therefore, and they were often gifted people, and they'd lead others away. And it's, um, so the church leadership really needs to be on the guard, wanting to encourage but making sure that, that people have, are getting the right food. And is it, I think it's pretty soon here, Paul says, admonish. You know, you, you need to admonish. Now, I can tell you, admonishing is the hardest thing for a leader. It's, um, and it's, the person who most admonished me in my life was Anne. And um, she could do it because I knew she loved me. Um, and if you can't admonish in love, you're probably not the person to do the admonishing. Maybe somebody else is going to, to do it. Um, admonishing is very, very hard. To go up to someone and say, I think you're doing this wrong, or this is not actually of benefit, or, or whatever you're having to admonish them for. Everyone that I know always wants to uh, shrink from admonishing. And if you enjoy admonishing, you're most of all the person not to do it. It's, it's always painful to admonish in the Lord and to want the um, person to progress. Sorry. Paul admonished with tears. And, and that will, I genuinely think, tears will be the way. Um, if, you, if you've got to admonish and you do it and you do it in the Lord, it will be with tears. And Paul then commends them to God or entrusts them to God and to the word of his grace to give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. 
And you get this, the only verse, I think, of Jesus that's not in the Gospels, the only thing that Jesus said that I think is not in the Gospels, it's the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it's not, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I don't think that's anywhere in the Gospels um, where he says that. And then he knelt down and prayed with them all. Weeping and loud, they embraced Paul and kissed him repeatedly. We have a lovely story from Afghanistan. <laughs> well, you may not think it. Um, I don't know if you know that, Afghanistan, uh, that Argentinian Christians, uh, when they meet each other, they hug each other and they kiss you on the back of the neck. Afghan Christians, the women and men never touch, even if they're husband and wife, you know, their whole society is, um, I'm not talking about what they do in their private homes, I'm talking about if, if they're out, out anywhere, they, they don't touch and the women will still walk behind the men and things like that. We, we had a couple of um, Argentinian Christians um, who were going back on home leave and they'd made particular friends with this Afghan Christian couple and they said, why don't you come to us, um, to, to Argentina with us and you can see life in the thing. And so this was arranged. And of course, they didn't tell them what happened in Argentina. And the poor Afghan woman didn't know what was hitting her when all these men came and hugged her and kissed her on the back of the neck. <laughs> um. I've even known English people who found that very difficult when they went to, to Argentina. <laughs> um. Sorry, I'm coming to the end. This letter, as I say, th this passage took place in 57, and Paul was never going to see them again. And this is what the, the tears are about. They're so sad that he's not going to actually be there and see them again and encourage them. But he does write them a letter. It's five years later, and you can read the letter in Ephesians. And the bit that I love in relation to this is also the passage in Revelation chapter 2 where John is writing to the church at Ephesus. And this is what, what he, he says. Um, I know your deeds and your doil, toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men. He's talking about the people who wanted to come in, just the same people that Paul is talking about. John is saying to them in Ephesus, you can't endure it. So they've, they've taken that to heart. You cannot endure evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and are not. And you found them false. D you see, what Paul has been warning about them, Paul is saying, well done, you've done that. You've done that. You've, you've, you've taken it seriously. And you have been perseverance and have endured for mine's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Used to be an old hymn, where is the love I knew when first I met the Lord? And um, we need to make sure that our love is being refreshed day by day. And we will do that by prayer and by fellowship and reading the scriptures and seeking to be with the Lord. As I say, this passage makes me, uh, I, I, I just love it 
in this fact. You know certain bits of scripture, um, I'm not saying that all of them aren't brilliant, they are, but uh, some of them actually touch you at, um, at a deeper level. And even for a, a boy who was brought up that you never cried, <laughs> very pleased that this makes me want to cry. Thank you.